So this week we launch out on an exploration. So I'm asking you to join me in being explorers. Explorers are curious. They're willing to blaze new trails and look for new answers, right? They're, they're willing to kind of live in the questions and be okay with the questions. So I'm inviting you to explore with us, right, as we start this seven-week journey through these questions because the reality is no 20-minute sermon or 30-minute sermon can answer these questions, right? We're going to just get started and kind of open the conversation and then hopefully continue to explore from there together, all right? All right, so let's get started this morning with this question of does life have a purpose? So when I was a teacher at Timothy Christian about 18 years ago or so, the best three reasons to teach, June, July, and August, okay? <laughs> Amazing. So it was June. I was home from uh, school. It was a beautiful summer morning, and I remember I was out in my driveway. There was like these trees in our driveway that would drop these needles all over the driveway. So I was out there sweeping them up, kind of cleaning them up in the morning, enjoying the beautiful air. No students to teach. It was awesome. And just as I was out there, my wife runs to the screen door and she yells out, Jeffrey, I need you in here right now. And she leaves. So I'm like, okay, all right. So I drop the broom. I head inside the house kind of gently. I, I look. I don't see anybody. Um, I, Honey, where are you? She says, in the basement. Come down here right now. So I walk down the basement, come around the corner. I only had three children at the time. They were all there. They were painted white from head to toe. Hair was white, faces were white, arms were white, clothes was white, legs were white, toys were white, walls were white, rugs were white. I mean, it was white paint everywhere. Now, of course, being a dad, being a smart dad, I, I, I asked the obvious question. What happened here? And my oldest son, the six-year-old, Ben, he decides to be the spokesperson for the group. He says, well, Dad, you see, yesterday we were down here. And we were painting these shelves with mom, and we got a little paint in ourselves, and she said, no big deal. It washes off with soap and water. So today we were down here, and we were like setting these paint cans up, and I was drumming. I was kind of drumming on them like a drum set, and they tipped over, so we thought, hey, no big deal. We're going to just do some painting. These kids are geniuses, right? Now, in that moment, I had this thought in my head, why did I think having kids was a good idea? And then I proceeded to spend the next six hours cleaning up the mess, right? It was, it was everywhere. And we still had remnants of that in our house, like, years later in the basement, white paint, just to remind us of the mess. Now, I got to wonder, as I kind of go through that story, I wonder if God ever looks down and, and thinks the same thing or asks the same question. Why did I think having kids was a good idea? Because, I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but the world's kind of a painty mess, Right? There's just a mess going on all over the place. And I wonder if anyone looks down and I wonder if you ever look in the mirror in the morning and think, what's the point of all this? My life is just not really working out like I hoped it would. What am I doing here? What's this all about? That's kind of this question of does life have purpose? And I'm going to tell you, people have been asking this question for a long time. In fact, if you look on the internet, you'll find that authors have written about it. Sports figures have written about it. Musicians have written about it. Philosophers have written about it. People smarter than me have written about it. And all the answers really don't give me much of an answer. So as I was faced with this question and exploring this question this morning for a few minutes, I'm like, well, where do I go? So I turned to this amazing source, the Westminster Catechism. How's that? You know, a catechism is like a question and answer uh, about the kind of general beliefs of the Christian faith. There's a question and there's an answer, a question and an answer, and it kind of outlines the worldview of the Christian faith. The Westminster Catechism is kind of the Presbyterian Catechism, but the first question in that Catechism is this, what is the chief end of people? 
That's kind of the question, right? What's the point? Why are we here? And the answer they give is this answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's pretty good. What does that mean? <laughs> what in the world does that mean? So I started, let's, let's begin with glorify God. So I thought we can dig in there, start there. So, so really, uh, in order to understand glorify, you have to first understand glory. Glory is really an indescribable thing. You can't put words to it. It's, it's kind of more like the word beauty than it is like the word basketball. I mean, basketball, I can tell you, basketball is nine inches round. It's got these brown leather strips with a black lines between it. You can put a pump in it, inflate it, and bounce it on the ground, right? Easier to define. Beauty, tougher to define, true? I can point at things that are beautiful, but I can't really put it into words, always. Well, glory is a lot like that. It's hard to put into words. It's an indescribable thing that's hard to, you know, kind of nail down. It's the spectacular nature of God's whole person. It's the weighty significance of his character. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, or I'm sorry, Dwight Edwards said this, uh, glory is like a stunning radiance and overwhelming splendor of his excellence. The Bible describes it with images of blinding light, raging fire, crashing thunder, flashing lightning, and magnificent rainbows. So if I am going to uh, try to glorify God, I have to somehow get in touch with his glory Look what it says about his glory in Revelation. It says this. The city of God does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Amazing. So when you go to heaven someday, you don't need electrical lights, you don't need the sun, you don't need the moon, you don't need any candles, because the glory of God lights up the whole place. Whoa. So if I'm going to glorify God with my life, I've got to figure out what, that, what does that look like? How does that work? Well... Here's what I think it looks like. I'm going to try to give you a little uh, illustration. Let me, let me go back to get my prop. I think the word glorify actually means to be a reflection. Reflection. Now, I'm trying not to blind people. I did, in the first service, I blinded several people. So, but to be a reflection. So basically what it says is I'm supposed to catch the glory of God as a person made in his image. I'm supposed to shine it to the world and that my life should actually add up to the place where people go, oh, I understand who God is. I understand what he's like because watching you live brings glory to God who made you. Because I'm the image of God, I'm supposed to accurately reflect to the world what this is all about, how this works. So this is what I'm like. I'm like a mirror catching the glory of God and reflecting it to the world. How's this going? pretty well. Uh, boy, when I look at my life, it's like, I don't know. Now, here's the thing. Uh, it's kind of like another way to think about it is like thinking about like parents and children. I don't know if you know this, but when I walked in a restaurant, my kids were two, four, six, and eight. I knew everybody in the restaurant was looking at, at those kids and watching them to see what kind of parent I was. You remember this? Yeah. And if I was, if they were behaving well, they'd be like, oh, that's a great parent. If they were behaving poorly, they'd be like, that guy can't parent. Can't. So, so think about it. My wife had this roommate in college. We called her the perf for short. Perfect was the, the perf short for perfect. And she was, she was just, her hair was perfect. Her clothes was perfect. You know, her voice was perfect. The way she functioned, never was late for anything. She was amazingly perfect. So one day I'm in the apartment. I was dating my wife. She was just my girlfriend. And the perf is standing there waiting for her dad to pick her up. And she's watching her clock and she's like, oh boy, oh boy. So dad comes in, and she says to her dad, Tatty, you're late. 
And he says, Angel, I'm sorry I was stuck in traffic. And she said, well, Daddy, I was worried. And he says, well, Angel, we probably should keep going because, you know, we're going to be later. And out they go. An hour and a half later, they come back. The perf walks in. And this is what she says to us. Guys, I'm sorry for arguing with my dad in front of you. When I argue, man, things are flying. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, daddy, angel, daddy, angel, daddy, angel. That's ridiculous. So I'm like, holy cow. So, so years later, years go by. The perf gets married. We get married. My wife and I get married. And the perf invites us over to her house for dinner. Me and my four Klein children. Oh, no. So I got my children. Guys, I say, guys, look. We're going to the perf house for dinner. And you got to be on your best behavior because the perf's going to be watching. And she said, no, what kind of glory I have as a parent based on your behavior? Well, it couldn't have worked out better. We got there that night. I don't know what happened, but my oldest son, Ben, he never ate anything without complaining. This particular night, ate every bit of his food. Like, I couldn't believe it. My other kids are sitting there quietly. The Perf kids are going bananas all over the place. I'm like, hey, Perf, what? (laughs) Right? Then, it was awesome. Never's happened since. Never happened before. My oldest son turns and says, hey, Dad, could you get everyone to quiet down so I can say my prayer before I leave the table? (laughs) Hallelujah. So I said, Perf, could you quiet your crazy kids down so that my kid can say his evening prayers? And he said this little prayer again. Now, this particular night, my kids were a perfect reflection of my glory. You understand, right? Perfect reflection. So, So this is what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be a perfect reflection of the glory of God. This is the meaning, the reason we were made. Okay, now here's the thing. There's been some writers to reflect on how it's going. Romans, Paul writes this. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So something's gotten in the way. This sin thing, this, this messing things up thing. It gets in the way of, of our proper reflection of God's glory. In fact, it gets even worse. Paul goes on and says this. In Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools. He's talking about us. And exchanged the glory and majesty and excellence of the immortal God for worthless idols, images in the shape of mortal man and birds and four-footed animals and reptiles. So we've actually said we don't really know if we want to reflect the glory of God. We're going to reflect the glory of some other stuff instead. Now, I think that this question, especially when people's lives get messy, when your life gets really painty messy, I think it really makes you ask, like, what's the point of all this? And you start to go on a search. And what you're searching for is a return to this glory for which you were made. Now, it's tempting for us to think that this search is a new search. It's just going on in 2018 because the world's all messed up. But this search has been going on for thousands of years. There's a guy in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, King Solomon, who wrote about this in Ecclesiastes. If you haven't read this book, you should check it out. And he wrote in the Ecclesiastes, he reflected on all this stuff about, you know, kind of the search for glory. So Solomon goes on this search. I want to just walk you through his search. Look at Ecclesiastes 1.13. He says, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom all human activity that has been done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on the human race. So he goes on this search. He goes on this, he's going to figure this out, this question. And look what he concludes. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly Meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. Now, is Solomon just a Debbie Downer? Is he just like a negative Nelly? Is this guy like just depressed? I mean, what kind of, what kind of conclusion is this? Well, I thought about this. I'm like, well, 
there's something else must be going on here. Because if you look at this story, Solomon actually starts to explore the various ways to find meaning in life. He starts with partying. He says, come now, test out with pleasure and find out what's good. Laughter. I'm going to take some wine, cheer myself up. And he starts to party, to have some fun. Right? But he declares, he, he decides, that's not quite it. Right? So he, using his wisdom, using his brain, he turns to the next pursuit. He goes, says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. So he said, when I didn't find it in fun and pleasure and drinking, I decided to build a bunch of stuff, to make a bunch of things, to take on great projects. But his conclusion was that really wasn't it either. So he turned to something else. Look at this. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me in all this. My wisdom stayed with me. So if it's not partying, if it's not building projects, it must be getting a bunch of stuff. I mean, don't you feel good when you have a bunch of stuff? Not, not so much. So then he thought, well, this isn't it. Maybe I'll go to education. I love how the message puts this. Then I took a hard look at what's smart and what's stupid. <laughs> but I did see that it's better to be smart than stupid. That's good. Just as light is better than darkness, even so though the smart ones see where they're going and the stupid ones grope in the dark, they're all the same in the end. One fate for all. And that's it. When I realized that my fate's the same as the fool's, I had to ask myself, why bother being smart? It's all smoke. Nothing but smoke. His final conclusion of the matter, look at this. I deny myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in my labor. This is reward for my toil. When I surveyed all that my hands had done, what my toil had achieved, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. There was nothing new under the sun. Now, it's interesting. Seriously, think about it. 3,000 years later, we're still pursuing the same things. Partying, great projects, accumulating stuff, and getting smart. What is going on? Why is it that deep inside of us, we want to find something by these pursuits? And I think it is, we're trying to find our way back to being glorious again. Because we know we're supposed to be glorious, but instead of turning the mirror on God and reflecting his glory, we do it this way instead. Woo! Look pretty good, don't I? I look myself in the mirror, and now it's not about God's glory, it's about my glory. So I party to get my glory. I, I do great pursuits to get my glory. I accumulate a bunch of stuff to get my glory. I get smart so I can say, look how smart I am. But the thing is, once you start doing those things, you have to keep doing them and doing them and doing them and doing them to keep your glory going, right? So you just get stuck in this endless cycle of meaninglessness. What Solomon didn't get, what we don't get often, is that we're supposed to be this reflection of the glory of God. We're supposed to be reflecting accurately this amazing image of our creator. Which is why we get stuck in this endless cycle of just 
going and going and going and going. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes in church, it's a little tempting to think that, you know, what, what the preacher's really saying is to really find meaning and purpose, you got to give up all your regular pursuits in life and just become like a preacher. What we need is 1,200 preachers. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, we don't. We need everyone to work in church to do this, to become glorious. No, that's not true. We need you to, be, to embrace who God's made you to be and then just offer that to the world as your reflection of his glory. I, I was taking Joseph through Wheaton College. We got to this one hallway, and on the wall were all these names. And I asked the guide who was guiding us, I said, what are all these names on the wall? Oh, those are all the missionaries that have graduated from Wheaton College. When that guy left, I said to Joseph, where's all the businessmen who built this building? Where's the guy who sweeps the floor's name? Where's the guy, where's the, all the teachers who are teaching people in this, in this place? Who are, where, where's the guy who does the insurance to keep this place protected? Where's the guy who, I mean, I could go on and on, right? Like we've messed this up. You, you, whatever God's called you to do, just go do it and be glorious. I was a glorious garbage man at some point, seriously, giving glory to God. Now, I love this because there's stories about this in, in, the, in the world. Like in, in the 1760s in St. Patrick's Cathedral, John Wesley was preaching against the self-centeredness of its wealthy, comfortable congregation. He was going after these people. And a person sitting out there, his name was Arthur Guinness. And he sat there as a young businessman thinking, huh, so I'm supposed to glorify God with my life. I'm supposed to give glory back to God. How can I do that with what I know how to do? What I know how to do is make beer. So I'm going to start a company and make beer for the glory of God. What? what? God and beer? No way. Yeah, Arthur Guinness started it, and they've given millions of dollars to, to deal with poor families and people that are under-resourced in the world ever since the founding of the company. So whatever you do, you offer it to God, right, as something that can glorify your God. Get the, the mirror turned the right direction. That's what it means to glorify God. Now, that's just the beginning of the answer, right? The Westminster Council says, that if, what's the chief end of people? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Look what Solomon says again. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. Sorry, I skipped one on you. There we go. He has also said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So somewhere planted inside of every human being on planet Earth, there's this sense of the eternal. There's this sense of something much bigger than us. Something that's been there long before we were ever here. Something that's going to be there long after we're gone. And something inside of us cries out for a connection with that eternal being that put us together. And so everyone in the world is searching to try to find that transcendent thing that draws us to into a deeper and bigger place with life, true? And so we're searching, we're looking. Well, how do you enjoy God? Well, you walk with him. You walk with him. So my wife occasionally wants me to go shopping with her. I don't like to shop. It's painful. So I make her tell me where we're going to go, what we're going to get. You know, give me the list. And so we get out of the car, and I am like on a mission from God, right? I'm like heading for the store as fast as possible to get this over with so I can go back home. So I start running out of the car, close the door. I look next to me. My wife is not there. I look behind me, and my wife is standing like this. I say, honey, what's the matter? We're shopping, right? We're shopping. She says, uh, why can't you walk with me? 
I'm like, well, that's not the point, huh? We're here to shop. No, that is the point. So I get my tail between my legs. I walk back. I get her hand, and I walk with her, right? Because the point is that we're walking together. When you walk with somebody, you're basically saying to them, I like you. I want to connect with you. I'm okay being seen with you, being identified with you, right? Walking with people says, this is good. We're walking together. We're connected. We're seeing each other, right? Have you ever pondered what it means to walk with God? You ever thought about that? What's it mean to walk with God? What's it look like? Not for God to walk with you, but for you to walk with God. Now, the Bible uses this phrase over and over again to summarize people's whole lives. Check this out. Enoch walked with God. That's all we know about him. It's in the Bible. Look at Noah. Righteous man, blameless, walked with God. The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. David walks with God so closely he's called a man after God's own heart. So literally, people's whole lives are summed up in the Bible by their walk with God. I don't have time to talk about Josiah, Hezekiah, Ezekiel. It goes on and on, right? Right, it's amazing. So what does it mean to walk with God? Well, the Hebrew word means that you're walking in the presence of God. So God's before you, he's behind you, he's alongside of you, he's over you, and he's within you. You're walking in the presence of God, and you're not trying to hide anything. You're just saying, God, here I am. I'm an open book. Let's walk together. Right? Let's do this together. Just be with me. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to try to intentionally be with you. It's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's a journey that goes to and fro and back and forth, not a straight line. Right? Uh, when you walk with God, the Hebrew word actually means you grow, increase, and progress. So when you walk with God, you can't help but grow, increase, and progress. And when you walk with God, it helps you know how to get this mirror facing the right direction. Right? So that your life reflects the glory of God. Pretty amazing. Now, you might have come in here this morning and say, well, that sounds really good, Pastor, but how in the world do I do this walking with God thing? Well, I'm going to tell you briefly, give you three little here's how to do it. First one, intentional daily connection with your God. So get up in the morning and determine that you're going to spend at least a few minutes trying to connect with your God in some way. I don't care, I mean, I don't care how you do it. It could be that you just sit quietly. It could be that you get your Bible out. It could be that you sit and try to pray. However you decide to do it, you're just going to try to have this intentional connection with your God. Just be with this person. If you're not with a person, you can't walk with them, right? That's, that's number one. The second one is this, to listen for the voice of God. So when my son Benjamin was born, my wife had gone through 36 hours of labor. Whew. It was painful to watch. And I remember I, had a, I have a handicapped brother. I've talked about him. And um, I said to the doctor about 1 o'clock in the morning on day two, look, doc, I don't want a disabled son. So can you please get that kid out of here? And within a minute, within a half an hour, we were in a room getting a C-section. And Ben was being taken out of his mom. I was holding Pam's hand behind a curtain, and they were taking Ben out on the other side. And I remember holding her hand. She'd been through the ringer for 36-plus hours. Now she's in surgery. So I'm just trying to stay with my wife and be with my wife. And I see my son come out, and they bring him on this table, and he starts screaming his head off like, a, like, a, like just nuts, right? And I'm, I'm sitting here going, okay, 
I, 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 I need to be with my wife, but I want to go to my son and tell him it's okay. What do I do? I'm sitting there, and, and so I just, I said, Benjamin, it's okay. It's okay. Daddy's here. And this kid who never met me, he stopped crying, and his head turned in my direction. He knew this annoying voice from nine months in the womb. He heard it over and over again. Right? It was unbelievable. And he turned and looked. And so I, I, I'm like, man, this kid knows the voice of his father. It's amazing. Do you know the voice of your father? If he calls out to you this week, will you recognize that it's the Lord God that's calling your name and wants to get your attention? Look what Isaiah says. Isaiah 30. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. I love that. And God's not going to yell. He's just going to whisper. So you got to be quiet enough, long enough to hear him whisper. There's one last uh, activity involved in walking with God, and that is turning to God and relying on him. So let's say that my wife needed a hug, and she came in here, and she, you know, came running down. I need a hug, I need a hug, I need a hug. And she went to Demay. She said, Demay, I need a hug. First of all, Sarah would be like, what? Right? I'd be going, what is going on? Because I'm jealous for my wife's love. True? What's it say about God in the scripture? He's jealous for his people's attention and love. When you've got something going on in your life, where do you turn? Most of us turn everywhere else first. And then eventually we turn to God. But God just wants us to turn to him, to rely on him, to look to him. This brings him glory. It honors who he is as a person, right? It, it lifts him up. Look at these verses again. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth a hymn of praise to our God. Look at this one, Proverbs chapter three. Trust in and rely confidently on the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own insight or understanding. In all your ways, know and acknowledge and recognize him and he will make your paths straight and smooth, removing obstacles that block your way. So what's the meaning of life? Well, Glorify God and walk with him, right? Intentionally hearing his voice, turning to him, trusting him. So I was a baseball coach for a long time. I coached baseball with a bunch of different guys. Most of them didn't really follow Jesus. They knew I was a pastor. At some point, they figured it out in spite of the fact that one of them said, I make umpires cry. It's okay. So, so one time I'm at a stop sign in Wheaton, and I'm at the stop sign. I'm about to go through, and this this jamoke on the other side cuts me off, almost runs into me, and I shake my fist at him like this, like, dude! And then I recognize him. It's one of the fellow baseball coaches. And he recognizes me. Oh, no. <laughs> so the next practice, he shows up, and he starts telling everybody the story. Yeah, you should see Clyde, man, his pastor. He's flipping me off in his car and driving by me and almost runs into me. The guy can't drive, and he's going on and on. I'm thinking, oh, man. I just messed up again. I just fell short of the glory of God. It's a simple thing. Just driving my car. But I didn't reflect accurately to these guys 
who my God really is, right? I fumbled the ball. Fyodor Dostoevsky, the writer of The Brothers Karamazov, says this, the one essential condition of human existence is that, the man, is that man should always be able to bow down before something infinitely great. If men are deprived of the infinitely great, they will not go on living and die of despair. The infinite and the eternal are as essential for man as the little planet on which he dwells. So can we commit this week to going after our God, the infinite, eternal God, who desperately wants to connect with you, desperately wants to relate to you. If you came here today and you don't even know this God, we would love to talk with you, love to help you explore what it means to know him. Okay? Let's keep exploring together. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for um, who you are. Thank you for calling us to who we're supposed to be. Lord God, I pray you'd help us this week to find you, to connect with eternity that's been set within us. And Lord, to give an accurate picture to the world of who you are. Thanks for being here this morning, God. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.